Thank you for listening to Subject to Interpretation. Hosted by Augustine Delamora. My name is Claudia. And my name is Kayla. And we are the producers of this program. Before we get into the interview with today's special guest, Tony Rosado, who you may know as the renowned interpreter trainer and founder of the well-known blog, The Professional Interpreter. We wanted to bring you the latest announcements from Delamora Interpreter Training, beginning with the podcast becoming a weekly series. If you found us on Facebook, we would like to remind you that you may download us directly to your phone wherever podcasts are available. And we pride ourselves on being one of the very few podcasts for professional interpreters out there, so please share us with all of your colleagues. Now on to some more exciting news. Starting with Delamora's annual summit, Finding the Parallels, which will be taking place this year on November 9th, 10th, and 11th here in Orlando, Florida. We're very excited about the agenda that we've put together for you guys, starting with a welcome reception on Friday night, which will have surprise guests, a panel of very interesting people coming together and speaking about uh, this field, and of course, food and drink, so don't miss it. Also, all the details regarding this event, of course, will be on our website. And don't forget, uh, all of our Florida registered and certified interpreters that you will have the opportunity to gain all of your 16 CIE credits just in this one weekend. And of course, we have some great discounted rates for all of our guests that may be traveling over to stay here with us in Orlando. So take this as an opportunity to come and get your CIE credits and possibly go to Disney World, why not? Besides all of the great legal training that we provide, if you are looking to become a medical interpreter, look no further. Our signature medical training program begins September 10th and is designed for students of all languages. This 40-hour course meets the prerequisites required to obtain your medical interpreter certification and also prepare you for the oral exam. Spaces are limited for all of our live online classes, so sign up today, and all of the details for these announcements will be in the description. Don't forget to stay tuned for next week's podcast featuring Holly Mickelson. Now, if you are a professional interpreter, or even if you're just starting in your interpreting career, you will most likely have heard of Holly's name. She's been incredibly influential, not only to everyone working as an interpreter today, but to the scene as well. And actually, I do believe she is the sole author of Intro to Court Interpretation, as well as the co-author of Fundamentals of Interpretation. Yes, both books that I'm sure every interpreter must have in their library today. Yes, so for sure. <laughs> we're very excited to have her, and it's a great conversation. So don't miss that. We're coming up next week. Yes. And we do appreciate all of you for listening in. We would love to hear your feedback. And also, if you do have any questions, please feel free to contact our office. You'll most likely speak to one of us. Yeah, we'll both be here. <laughs> yes. But until next week, now enjoy the interview with Tony Rosado. Bye, guys. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Subject to Interpretation. My name is Agustin de la Mora. I'm your host today, and I'm super happy and uh, very privileged and honored to have a good friend and very well-known interpreter, uh, Tony Rosado. I'll just give you a very brief introduction as to what I remember from Tony because he has so many things going on. But I know that Tony is a conference interpreter. He's 
uh, federally certified for sure. I'm pretty sure consortium certified, maybe State Department certified. He's an interpreter, a translator. He works conferences all over the country and the world. Um, we have uh, had the pleasure to cross paths many times while we were both teaching or attending the NAGIT conferences and maybe some other conferences. Uh, he's an expert in the field of especially legal interpretation and a great instructor. I know he works for the Defense Language Institute at one point. I don't know if he still does. But uh, I'm going to let you, Tony, uh, introduce yourself. Thank you very much for being with us today. Uh, thank you, Agustin, and thank you to all the people that are listening to us today. Uh, like Agustin was saying, we've known each other for quite a few years, and yes, uh, I do all those things that Agustin was uh, saying. Uh, actually, uh, at this time, I am concentrating most of my practice in two main things. One is conference interpreting, and the other one is in teaching and being an instructor of interpreters. Those are the two main things that I'm doing at this point. But yes, I have the certifications and the other credentials that Agustin was mentioning, plus the fact that I also have a law degree. Yeah, I forgot to mention. And where, where, where is your degree from, Tony? Uh, I have a, a, a law degree, an original law degree from the Escuela Libre de Derecho in Mexico City. And then I did a comparative studies uh, uh, masters at Columbia University in uh, the United States, which is what allowed me to then take the California State Bar. Oh, cool. So you're still licensed in California? Uh, I am licensed, but I don't have an active license at this time. Got you. But, and that's an interesting switch because many people would think, well, hey, you know, he's an attorney that those guys make a lot of money. How come you're an interpreter instead? What, what happened? Well, uh, this uh, goes back to the beginning of my decision to study law. Uh, originally, I really had two interests or two passions, if you want. One is uh, to practice in the legal field, and the other one was to be an interpreter. I grew up uh, in an environment where I was exposed to interpreting all my life and to the legal profession all my life because my father was in diplomacy. So uh, I knew both fields from the beginning, uh, but I was told many, many times that the safest uh, route was to become an attorney because that way I would make sure that I wouldn't starve. So I kind <laughs> of uh, went along with that and I studied law first. I really like uh, the days when I practice law, but uh, as I was studying law uh, and I started practicing the profession, I did realize that indeed my first love was not uh, the legal practice, but it was interpreting. And at that point, I felt confident enough to uh, make the switch and devote uh, the rest of my life to interpreting, uh, taking advantage of the tools that I had learned uh, by going to law school, not just of uh, the legal knowledge itself, but also the techniques of how to do research and how to study. That's great. And, and I guess, you know, your parents sounded a little bit like those parents that hear somebody says, I want to be an actor, right? Exactly. And you know, you're going to be a starving interpreter. So we're happy to say that you're not starving as an interpreter. 
Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, once that I got into the field, I did realize that interpreting is not a starving uh, interpreter's field. It can be a starving interpreter's field if you don't do things right, but actually interpreting has allowed me to live a more than comfortable life. You just have to uh, know how to do things because 50% uh, is being a good interpreter, but the other 50% is also being good at business. And that's one thing that a lot of colleagues sometimes do not realize. Once that you marriage those two things, uh, you will see that you can uh, have a comfortable life and be an interpreter if that's what you like. Yeah, and I, I love you saying that, Tony, because I, I think that uh, part of the things that I wanted to touch on today was the fact that you decided to be an interpreter, even though theoretically an attorney could be a, a very successful and, and live a comfortable life, but you decided to be an interpreter because it was your passion, but you found out that it's not necessarily true, and I'm pretty sure that there's uh, some attorneys out there that are starving attorneys, right? Absolutely. Many, many. Yeah, yeah. So you're an educator, and, and I know that uh, I think the first time I met you was because I attended one of your seminars in, in Nagit. We're not going to say how many years exactly, but many years ago when you and I were probably in our teens. When it was, <laughs> raining, when it was raining a lot outside, eh? just a few of us got saved. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So as an educator, what do you think are the mistakes that interpreters are committing? Why are they uh, failing to, especially this exams, you know, this very scary, oh my God, I can't pass the test kind of thing that we hear around our interpreters. What is it that they're not getting? I think it's several things, Agustin. Uh, the first uh, thing that I think that people do not understand is that this is a profession. This is a serious profession. And like all professions, just like a physician or like an accountant or like an engineer, uh, good interpreters need to study. You need to do your homework. You need to practice. You need to research your subject matter. And I think those are some of the things that are lacking. And a lot of times, People think that uh, studying for an exam or studying for a conference and to prepare for a legal or a medical case is all about just uh, collecting a glossary uh, and, uh, and good luck. And it goes much more beyond that. You have to, first of all, understand the subject matter. So you have to have good comprehension. And for that, you have to be willing to study. It is not easy. It doesn't happen overnight. But those are the main things that people have to do. I have noticed that the people that really understand what they are interpreting usually have very little problem uh, succeeding in uh, the court interpreter certification examinations, in the healthcare interpreter certification examinations, in the State Department credentialing, in any other type of uh, interpreting uh, uh, certifications or examinations, because once that you understand what you need to do, uh, you know what to study and you're not so nervous to take the test. And later on in professional life, you will have many more resources and you will have the gift of knowing where to go, look for what you need to learn or what you need to understand in order to have a good rendition for that assignment. Of course. And you mentioned uh, uh, credentialing from the State Department. I wanted to touch on that because I think that there's, especially uh, in the circle side move, and I, I, even when people even realize that interpreters uh, need to actually be trained because it's, it's very common for me when people ask me, what do you do? And I say, I train interpreters. They say, what language? 
You know, the assumption is I teach them languages, which I don't. But uh, when we talk about that, even uh, among interpreters, there seems to be this conference, uh, courts, and medical are the three most talked about fields. But the conference interpretation um, does not uh, really talk a lot about this State Department credentialing. So how did you get, are you credentialed by the State Department? How does that work? Yes, I am. Uh, the credentialing by the State Department uh, is not really a certification. It's just a credential that allows you to work for the United States uh, Executive Branch uh, of Government. Uh, but it is uh, similar in a way to a court or a healthcare uh, interpretation in a sense, because uh, you have to pass an examination uh, in order to get that uh, credential. Um, State Department credentialing is uh, for a certain type of work that is definitely part of conference interpreting, but it's the part of conference interpreting that you can call diplomatic interpreting. And it has uh, three different levels. With the State Department, you can uh, take a test to get a credential in one of uh, three different levels, going from the lower to, to the higher. First, you have what is called the administrative level interpreter. These are interpreters that can uh, work uh, as contractors or as staff for the United States Department of State doing uh, work uh, with uh, dignitaries and uh, international visitors that come to the United States in some official business, uh, helping them and assisting them in uh, daily tasks needed for uh, their mission, such as with uh, hotel reservations, uh, uh, going from one place to another, uh, hot, uh, airplane transportation, etc. Mm -hmm. uh, the second credentialing, uh, again, from bottom to top, could be the one called a seminar interpreter. Seminar interpreter are those interpreters that do conference work, that is, work on simultaneous mode and consecutive mode during a conference, a talk, a negotiation, where the international visitors are present. Uh, characterized uh, by the fact that it's a small uh, conference. It is done with equipment, but it's with a very uh, small group, let's say 10, 15. I think the top is 20 people. And it, it is never uh, the highest level of uh, diplomatic visitors that come to the United States. Uh, and finally, the highest one of the three uh, levels is called the conference level interpreting. And that uh, allows you to do everything that I have explained so far. But uh, these are the interpreters uh, that can work at the large venues, that can work the large gatherings, and that can work with all uh, types of uh, government officials, including the president and the vice president of the United States. Conference interpreters, uh, State Department conference interpreters for that reason, unlike seminar and administrative interpreters, work not just within the United States, but also work abroad uh, when they travel with some government official that can be all the way from being on Air Force One with the president to uh, accompanying an uh, FDA inspector uh, that is going to inspect a plant in some foreign country to determine if those uh, products will be allowed to come into the United States for the consumers. That's awesome. And have you had any experience traveling with one of these officials at one time or another, Tony? Yes, I have. I have had several of these uh, experiences, and it is quite interesting. Uh, I cannot say much about it, but, it's a, very, it, but it's a, it is a very interesting part of the work. 
That's wonderful. And so do you think that if I want to be an interpreter today, is there room for me? Can I make a living? Is it the possibility of fulfilling what Tony's dream was and my dream now, which is I want to be an interpreter? Is there an opportunity still? Absolutely. There are plenty of opportunities. Uh, the only thing that is uh, very important to keep in mind that is not uh, for free and it is not effortless. Uh, there is a lot of competition. You have a lot of competitors that you're going to go uh, and try to share the market with. Uh, and that will require for you as a new interpreter to be well prepared uh, to be savvy uh, in business, skilled at your craft. And also, in my opinion, and I think this is more and more uh, needed nowadays, you should have a specialization. Uh, you cannot be just like a general practitioner interpreter because then you're competing with the rest of the world and you are at a disadvantage with most of them. But if you decide that your niche is this or that specialty and you devote uh, your practice your study uh, to that area of interpreting, uh, you have a very good chance uh, to succeed, especially today when we are competing with interpreters from all over the world. 10 years ago, we were competing with interpreters from our own state or our own country. Now we're competing with interpreters from all over the world with this uh, great surge that uh, simultaneous uh, remote interpreting is having and for a, a healthcare and legal interpreter, also the VRI. Uh, now there's people uh, that are probably 12 time zones away from you that might be your competitor for a specific assignment. That's right, and which we never had to fear before. Yes. And so tell us uh, one of those tips that you say, hey, listen, let me tell you this thing that you really have to do that I, it helped me, Tony, to go over my first. What was your first certification? What did you seek first? Well, uh, because I was an attorney, my first certification was as a court interpreter. And uh, uh, I got uh, first uh, a couple of, uh, no, actually one. First, I got one state certification. Then I got the federal and then I got another state one. Don't ask me why, but I got it. <laughs> it wasn't needed, but I got it. But mm -hmm. the, first, the first one I got was a state level certification, what we used to call in those days a consortium level certification. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and that was so that I could uh, work uh, uh, as an interpreter in a big law firm where I was working at the time. Uh, that was an international law and immigration law firm. And then uh, that, that's what allowed me to then uh, break away and start my freelance career first as a court interpreter uh, and later on evolving to be an in instructor teacher and a conference interpreter as well. So tell us about that transition. How did you go from being an interpreter to deciding to, well, I'm going to teach interpreters? Uh, teaching had always been another thing that I liked very much. I have to say that my first teaching was not to interpreters. The first thing that I taught was in law school. I taught uh, uh, in law school the, you know, the fourth uh, course of uh, civil law, and I did that for several years. That was my first time that I taught. I fell in love with that. At first, I started as a adjunct professor, and then I got my own, uh, my own class. Uh, and from there, it was easy for me to take the next step and go into uh, interpreting uh, 
teaching for, to interpreters and being an interpreter instructor for interpreters already developed that are seeking continuing education or to sharpen some skill. Uh, so it was a very smooth uh, transition, but I really learned the craft uh, teaching at law school and then that allowed me then to transition and teach at the different universities that I have been fortunate enough to teach interpreting as well as some institutes and the uh, uh, special uh, instruction that we do to professional interpreters just like like you very well done because you do that all the time as well right and do you remember the first time you taught uh, in a conference for interpreters you remember where that was uh, you know uh, specifically i don't remember but i am i am sure it had to be some uh, Najit conference a long, long time ago. Uh, I want to say it was Najit, uh, maybe it was ATA. I, I, I do remember it was in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and it was ages ago, but I don't remember which one of the two it was. I think it was Najit, but I am not very, very sure. Yeah. It was I, way over 20 years ago. Yeah, it's fuzzy to me too. I, I want to say I started in ATA, but uh, I, I'm not sure yet. I mean, I'm not sure for sure uh, if I started there, but I, I remember I was quite nervous, but super excited because I always loved teaching. I, and it's interesting because my dad was a professor at the university. And I remember as a kid thinking, man, who wants to be a teacher? So you go to the same class, teach the same stuff every time and then get the same answers. And what a boring profession. I think that was some kind of hex that I put on myself because then I've been teaching for the last 30 years or so. Um, so, but I remember the first time it was very exciting to stand there and say, oh man, all these guys are colleagues and, and want to learn about uh, what I've been doing with, with interpretations. So that was cool. Um, what, what do you, how do you see the field now and what would you like to see happening? Well, I, uh, the field now I see the very big, bigger than ever before because we're on a, a worldwide stage, like I was saying. Mm -hmm. uh, I see a very competitive field with a lot of goods and a lot of bad things. Uh, things that really uh, concern me about the field right now is uh, the, uh, uh, the idea of trying to turn our profession into an industry that where we are treated as commodities mm -hmm. and where the bottom line is just to provide a warm body or now actually mm -hmm. just the, the, the colorful voice, regardless mm -hmm. of the quality behind that voice or you know, the brains behind that warm body, uh, because the bottom line is to give the client which in this case, I couldn't even call a client, but I would call the person or the entity a customer, uh, whatever they think they want so that they are happy. So in other words, uh, I am concerned about the fact that people might think that they are buying a, a good service, they are buying a professional interpreter and they're getting something that is not really what they expected. If you wanna go buy a Mercedes or a BMW, you wanna drive uh, off the lot on a Mercedes or in a BMW. But if you go to buy a Mercedes and you get a lemon, then you will live to regret it. And unfortunately, sometimes the lemon looks good because it has a fresh paint. Uh, it smells and good. <laughs> and it smells really good. Mm -hmm. But uh, you know, if, if you look under the hood, uh, you ain't gonna find what you needed to find. And I think that's a big problem that we have. A lot of the colleagues uh, uh, are competing with people 
who are really not interpreters, but people that have been attracted to making a little bit more of uh, money because they are bilinguals. And under the false assumption that any bilingual is an interpreter, they come into this so-called industry where they are paid a really pitiful uh, fees uh, mm. But to them, you know, compared to what they were making, I don't know, flipping hamburgers, nothing against flipping hamburgers. I love hamburgers, but it's not a profession comparable to what we do. Well, to them, that, that amount of money might be attractive. And that's what really concerns me. Uh, what I really would like to see is more of a professionalization of uh, our craft. Uh, it, some countries are ahead of others doing this. One of the great things that the profession has allowed me to do is to travel and work all over the world. And I see that some countries are way ahead of others. I see uh, a much more professional uh, mentality for interpreting in Europe than I see in the United States, for example. Uh, and I would like to get to that point. I would like to get to the point that everybody has to be a a professional interpreter with some professional background education, uh, of course, on a transitional way. But I think that even uh, from the beginning with somebody at least having some kind of a bachelor's degree in whatever it is, so that at least uh, we know that you can uh, learn how to do research and how to study for an assignment. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that would be very, very important. And also uh, uh, the fact that uh, professionals command professional fees and uh, Professionals mm -hmm. have a professional mentality and it's much more difficult for these people to want to settle for less than for somebody that is really not a professional. Right, and, and I think you probably see it, the way I see it is it's quite a conundrum because uh, we have the market pushing to say more and more bodies quickly. Uh, training is not that an issue, but also I'm, I'm Concerned on one hand that I don't want the government to stick their nose into anybody's business a lot, but I think we do need better regulation that we have right now um, as far as this certifications or licensing or whatever. So people would be a little bit more inclined, let's say, or actually obligated to use trained interpreters. How do you see that, that idea of making it a lot more strict about licensing procedures or the teeth of being licensed or not. I, I would love to see that because that could be treating us like any other profession. But mm -hmm. I do not think that this has to be something the government does. In fact, I would not like the government to do this. And there's no need to. All we have to do is to look at all the other tra traditional professions. Mm -hmm. uh, the attorneys self-regulate themselves. You have mm -hmm. state bar associations in every single state. You have then the American Bar Association uh, for the federal level. You have the uh, medical board for the physicians. And you have the same thing for architects and engineers and accountants and so on. So I think that we could self-regulate ourselves. Uh, of course, uh, in the United States, due to its complexity, it would probably have to be at the state level because states are different. Uh, but mm -hmm. with some reciprocity agreements and some requirements maybe to overcome to be able to practice in another state. Uh, but this could be uh, done uh, by interpreters with interpreters uh, regulating themselves. Uh, and I'm not talking about the professional organizations that we have right now because uh, I, I would want to stay away from the big corporations having a saying on this. Yes. I would yes, like I for agree. this to be the interpreters. But mm -hmm. I don't see why, uh, you know, we cannot 
be like an attorney or like a, a physician. I think that we have people with the brains to do it. I know many that do have them and we have the will to do it. So I don't know when this will happen, but I would definitely like uh, for us to go that way. Maybe we should start planting the seed of, of, of that next step. I, I, I often thought that I don't see why the states of every state have to do the certification exams and, and deal with them themselves when we should have an organization that deals with them. And maybe even one of these days obtain some kind of national uh, recognition for in the case of uh, court interpretation. So let me, let me move you right along to asking you this controversial thing that happened very briefly about this Russian interpreter. What's your take there? with Putin well, and, and Trump. What, what, what happened in, in, in this issue, you're talking about uh, the, the case of uh, the pre President Trump and President Putin meeting in, in Finland mm -hmm. uh, in private. And then uh, after coming out of that meeting, uh, the people in Congress, especially the opposition party, wanted to know what happened uh, behind closed doors. And uh, because there were not third parties, but just the uh, two presidents and their respective uh, interpreters, in our case, the State Department uh, interpreter, and in the case of President Putin, the Russian interpreter, uh, Congress wanted to subpoena uh, the interpreter, in our case, uh, Marina Gross, to see uh, what happened at that meeting. Uh, I think that a lot has been said about that. Most of what has been said by our colleagues the interpreters that do this kind of work, the interpreters that care about the profession is right and I do agree with that. There is no way that an interpreter should be required to come and testify in that sense because confidentiality is paramount to the profession. Uh, moreover, confidentiality is paramount to the business of government and you have all kinds of issues here besides uh, the specifically applicable to interpreting, such as executive privilege as uh, the how far the subpoena power can reach about when the judiciary would come and decide this. And then uh, the consequences of doing or not doing uh, or, or complying or not complying with what the government wants. So I think it's a very uh, difficult uh, road to go uh, to. Uh, I think that I, it was uncalled for. I was very disappointed on the, uh, you know, in these politicians that just to advance their political career or maybe gay votes in November are trying to kill, forget about who is the occupant of the White House right now, trying to kill uh, one of the uh, main professions that have helped uh, keep the peace in the world after World War II, which is the, the, the person that facilitates the diplomatic dialogue between heads of state. I don't think that that's proper. I don't think that that uh, should have ever happened. And, uh, and that's, uh, that's just a, a, an awful thing. I knew from the beginning that that was never going to fly. And uh, there are some other reasons that we never even got to, to witness or to explore for this to happen. But the main concern here is not what didn't happen because fortunately nothing happened here, but it is the chilling effect that this will yes. happen both on the diplomat and on the interpreter. In other words, mm -hmm. Agustin, let's say that they call you to be an interpreter for X uh, important official in a private meeting, whether it is a, you know, a, a politician or a head of state or even the president of a big corporation with you know, big intellectual property rights that they protect. And all of a sudden, uh, you know that there's a danger that they're going to take you somewhere and force you to disclose exactly. what you heard. 
who mm. would want to do that? I mean, you're mm. getting paid for being an interpreter. Who is going to cover your expenses and who is going to cover your psychological damage and the tremendous uh, hurt, uh, her, her, her reputation that you will have if you have to go through that? So who would want to do that? And on the other hand, who would want to hire an interpreter? Everybody's going to show up with their spouse because they're going to claim the spousal privilege as their interpreter. So everybody's going to be marrying somebody that speaks another language. That's ridiculous, you know? Yeah, yeah. I agree, Tony. I, I was pretty sure that I was going to hear that, but I still wanted us uh, to chat a little bit about it. And I really appreciate you being with us. But before I let you go, I want you to tell us, uh, tell our audience, where do they find you? Where, where do they find Tony? And I know you have a very highly followed blog, so you want to give us a little bit of a pitch. Yeah, I would love for people to go uh, read my blog. My blog is The Professional Interpreter Blog. You can just uh, Google it that way, The Professional Interpreter Blog, and you will find there uh, some uh, blog entries, usually once a week, on all kinds of things that are important to the profession. I tackle all fields. This is a worldwide audience that I have. So sometimes it's about things in the United States. Sometimes it's about things in other countries, but I think that it contributes importantly. Also for more day-to-day -day things, uh, you can follow me on Twitter. It's RPS Translations. Again, at RPS Translations. You can follow me on Instagram at plus Tony Rosado one. It's a number one at the end, plus Tony Rosado one. You can uh, try to link in with me on LinkedIn under Tony Rosado. Uh, you can also go, I have a YouTube channel. You can go to Tony Rosado Interpreter where once a month, we also share videos with people about things uh, pertinent to the profession. Uh, you can follow me on uh, 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 and if you think that it's too complicated to get all this, just go to the professional interpreter blog. You'll find it there or to my website, rpstranslations.com. They have links to everything. Or if that's too difficult for you to remember, just go to About Me. And on, in About Me, just look for Tony Rosado and you will find all my different links there. All right. Well, certainly you have a presence and well-deserved uh, reputation, Tony. I appreciate the, your time. And any last uh, words of wisdom that you want to give, especially to our budding interpreters that are thinking about doing this? Yes, uh, I want to leave you with one thing, guys. I think that, uh, and this is uh, geared to uh, freelance interpreters more than staff, uh, but it's also, I think, uh, a good tip for the staffers. Uh, Remember that as an interpreter, you have clients because you're a professional. You don't have a boss. Uh, it disturbs me sometimes to hear my colleagues say, oh, you know, such and such hospital, I work for such and such hospital, or I work for such and such courthouse, when in reality, they're freelancers. You have to treat all of these entities as your clients, because that puts you in charge. And that allows you to move on and progress and uh, become a wealthier, uh, both in uh, wisdom, in money, and also in reputation, because you will be moving on up, finding the client that best suits you for that time in your professional life. All right. Well, thank you very much, Tony. We appreciate your time, and we'll, we'll see you around in one of these uh, conferences or something. I actually missed you at the IEC conference. I'm, I'm assuming maybe you were somewhere else. 
Yeah, yeah, I was somewhere else and I miss you there too, but it's a pleasure as always, Agustin, and no doubt about it, we'll continue to run into each other many more times. Okay, thanks a lot, Tony. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.